Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Harford and this is another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. Today we go in a completely new direction for the show and show notes of Jez Riley French who I'm interviewing today will be at eatweeds.co.uk forward slash podcast. I've just spent a weekend with a delightful crew of people interested in sound art. And the reason I've asked Jez to come on the show and he's kindly agreed is because he's one of Britain's foremost sound artists and is doing an exhibition at the Forest of Dean this coming week. Welcome Jez. What's the show called? The Secret Sound of Trees. So that's why he's here as you can tell trees, sound, eco-acoustics, listening to plants becoming more a commonplace event. I just want to pick your brains. Mm -hmm. How did the exhibition come about? How, how long has it taken to conceptualise it and bring it into fruition? Well, I was commissioned by uh, Sound UK, which is an arts organisation, uh, and it's um, also Forestry England of, of uh, part of that. Um, and I think it's taken us about eight or nine months. I spent obviously time in the Forest of Dean making the recordings with microphones that I built myself um, for recording the, the actual sounds of trees and plants rather than sonifying them, as in turning them into musical tones. These are the actual internal sounds of plants. And trees um, and then there's a, a period of time where I listen back and I think and I work out which recordings will work in terms of this piece and compose an arc if you like of, of a piece and the the um, the whole project is um, a live installation so there's multiple speakers in the forest uh, and there's some musical element which has been composed by Launel who's a Finnish artist and she's composed several pieces for it. And the purpose, it's, a, it's an immersive experience that people are coming to. Mm, mm. What's the purpose of that experience for you as the creator? Well, well I mean, the, the overall aim is to, is to get people to engage with the forest in a, in a different way, rather than see it as just as, um, as a kind of leisure entertainment space. Um, on another level, I, for me, my work with plant sounds is, a, is about kind of stepping back from our impositions onto nature and listening to them on their terms. So that's quite important for me. Because there, there have been lots of pieces of work in recent years where people have sonified the signals of, um, of plants and turned them into... I guess new age music, if you want to call it that, or ambient music. That's like plant wave. Yeah, like the plant wave um, devices. And yeah. I mean, as a creative choice, if you want to do that, it's fine. But I'm really fascinated with the actual sounds, which is just as fascinating, just as beautiful, just as powerful. But um, I think are more on that on those other species terms. You know, um, for me, that's really important to kind of get nearer to the to the other species and, and listen to sounds that aren't available to our naked ears normally. Um, it kind of helps me understand my own impositions onto environments. You know, because as a field recordist and sound artist who uses 
um, located sound a lot, I have to deal with the fact that I am walking into those spaces and disturbing them. You know, so for me, it's not it's not enough to just collect the sounds. I have to think about the ethics of what I'm doing. And when I'm presenting work, for me, it's not enough just to present another Don Carlos recording or another wide soundscape. You know, that's not enough. That's that's more about the ego of the person. I have to be digging deeper and revealing something else. You know. I was intrigued by what you just said about you as a human imposing yourself into those spaces. Mm. You, from from reading some of your your kind of work, you talk about this aspect that nature is a construct, mm. Mm. and and yet humans, you know, from my understanding, you include humans in nature. Right? I do. Ex yeah. 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 So. If we're included, how can we be imposing into their space, so just Well, because we have, historically, we have viewed it through that div division. You know, there's nature and then there's us. So we have, we have lauded ourselves over that, that, that other world. You know, it's like anothering, you know. Um, and really, it's, it's, what, what I find quite sort of fascinating is this idea of the, for example, of the countryside, whichever country you're in, as this idyllic place, that's an 18th century upper class idea of nature. For the working class people who lived in the countryside, it certainly wasn't a beautiful bucolic place. There was beauty there, but it was a hard life. And it's amazing how we've latched on to this kind of prettifying of nature. You know, so, yeah, so uh, we've invented nature. You know, it's, before, before we had a language, you know, it wasn't called nature, and trees weren't called trees, and it's, it's all our invention. And along with those words, and like you mentioned, ecoacoustics, there's obviously a lot of work identifying species. We were doing some recording this weekend, for example, of uh, certain insects, and we weren't sure what they were because that sound work hasn't been done yet. And when it is done, somebody will name the sound, and they'll, you know, and it, that has to be done. There are important reasons why that has to be done. We have to be aware of the fact that very often that comes with a weight as well, and with a historical weight. Um, so for me, it's um, it's quite important to kind of bridge that gap and just ac accept that it's all an invention, that it's a fiction, a human fiction. We can only ever perceive nature through a human lens. You know, we can't we can't be a tree, we can't be a slug or whatever. Um, and I, I, I hope. That means that when I present work, I'm not just using nature for what I want to do. I'm trying to reveal it in different ways that push that conversation into a different space, maybe. That's really fascinating. I, I mean, this is why I got you on, because I knew that these were the subjects that, that intrigued you. How did you, tell us about sound. How did you end up in this place? I mean, I have to let everyone know that I came on this event. Everyone else knew who you were. And I, <laughs> I sit there going, I don't know who he is. <laughs> and yet you are, you know, you are a, a pioneer, it feels like. Yeah, that's a complicated word, isn't it? As, as we've been of discussing course, during it's, this week, it's, it's, there were so many, I mean... Yeah, yeah, I want you to cover that. So, so tell us about your... Your origins, you know, how do you, how you got into sound? I know yeah. that you're a musician, but also what I think is really important is is give us a bit about the history of 
of field recording and sound art, and mm. more, more importantly, which you've been emphasising this weekend, the forgotten story and the forgotten mm. people. Well, erased. Erased. Yeah, forgotten is too passive a word. It yeah. was a willing erasure of people from the history, of, of women predominantly, yeah. from the history. Um, my own story is that I, when I was 12 or 13, I can't remember exactly which, my mum bought me a guitar for my birthday and a cassette recorder to record myself playing the guitar. It was around the time of sort of punk and new wave. That was the music that kind of grabbed me at the time. I went off it quite quickly, but <laughs> post-punk was a bit better. But anyway, um, so I had this tape recorder to record myself playing the guitar and also record radio shows. And, and I was just listening to a radio session in the garden and I pressed, uh, it was one of those really old tape recorders that had the record and play button next to each other. So I'd accidentally pressed record at the same time. So after about five minutes, I realised that <laughs> nothing was happening. But because I'd been recording over, over the um, radio programme that I'd recorded the night before. But I was so young, that I, I just played it back. And I, I hadn't already been trained to know what the difference was between music and sound. So when I listened back and heard all of these sounds in the garden that I wasn't conscious of at the time, because we filter out so much in our everyday listening, I perceived it as music, and I thought, oh, that's really nice, better than the radio programme that I was going to listen to. So that got me hooked on what I later learned was field recording. I didn't have any knowledge of what field recording was then. I was so just what year would this have been? 1979, something okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, 78, 79, something like that. Uh, so for a while I just wandered around with this tape recorder recording anything and everything, you know. Bit too much. I did too much recording and very short recordings. And maybe go on to discuss the fact that I nowadays I use duration as a key tool. But um, and then I got really interested in traditional music from different parts of the world through through the voice. Actually, that was the first thing that hooked me because I love the sound of the human voice. But I found the narrative. When I couldn't understand the narrative. I found it distracted me from listening to the voice as an instrument. So I started listening to Bulgarian music and Hungarian music. Um, and then I got to know what field recording was, because obviously lots of that early uh, recordings of that was recorded in the field, outside of a studio environment. Um, but, it, but again, interestingly, because I wasn't coming at it from like a, um, an educational background, I, didn't, I wasn't told who the supposed masters were. So I was just picking up people at random. Most of the field recorders in the early 20th century were women. So I knew about um, Carpelli's before I knew about Cecil Sharp, and then, you know, Laura Bolton before I knew about Alan Lomax, just by accident. You know, I'm not saying I was a genius of research at the age yeah. of 14. Just by accident, I happened to borrow those LPs from the library and knew their names before I knew these people who were the accepted leaders of the field. Kind of thing, you know? um, so that's how I got interested. And then... Uh, I had a business in the music industry in my 20s and early 30s, and I didn't have time to do a lot of field recording. But we, um, we sold that business, we, we had to. Um, there were various personal situations. I was not in a good place. My mum had passed away, and I needed something that made me stop. So I, I got back into field recording and longer and longer durational listening. Not as a form of meditation in, in the kind of classic sense of the word, but as a kind of way for me to slow down and just kind of um, 
focus on something else other than all of the sort of deeply emotional thoughts that were being processed at the same time. So that's, I think, when my practice went to a different level. And I got really hooked on um, non-conventional microphones as well. So microphones for listening to sounds we can't normally hear. So contact mics, which pick up vibration, hydrophones for in aquatic spaces, things like that, uh, getting under the surface of place. So do you have any experience? Um, you mentioned your own personal story there. Do you think there is a place for field recordings in well-being? Because so many people mm. are going into nature. Mm. Often the, the calling, to give it a tag, is unconscious. Mm. It's often, I hear, time and time again, very similar stories like you. My own story is exactly that. Mm. Um, and I just wonder, because it's such a, a niche field recording, very few people that I know have even heard of it in my, in my social networks. Right. And it just feels that it's so powerful mm. and such an important exploration Mm. and journey uh, that, I mean, this is why I've got you on, because for me personally, uh, you know, I, I came across it in, when I was 19, initially, mm. early, and suddenly 40 years later, I find myself sitting next to you, mm. talking this stuff, and I just get a deep sense that this is incredibly important for like you say, restoring that connection mm. with the environment. But in you're coming in a really cool way in this trying to go beyond seeing nature. Yeah. This us, us and it mm, mm. kind of um, experience. If, if, if people listening to this who've never heard of field recording, never heard of sound art or, mm, you know, maybe mm. they're, they're quite conventional in their listening kind of choices, but their curiosity has been piqued mm. by what you've just said. What would you say to them? How would you encourage people to start exploring this world? Well, the first thing I'd say is we're all always field recording in our brains. We're all listeners. Whether, whether we listen to the natural in inverted commas environment or an urban environment, we're always listening. Um, I suppose I suppose when you use the term field recording, it links it to a technology that captures that in some sense. And as we've talked about this weekend, I very often listen through microphones. I sometimes don't press record at all. It's, for me, it's not about the gathering of the material. It's about the listening itself. And I use microphones as an aid to listening. But I'm, I'm, I have my own practice, my own way of doing it. And I have opinions and insights. I don't think I want to get to the point where I'm saying everybody should do any of this. So if people think of nature as a healing space and want to approach it like that, I'm not going to say they're wrong. What I'm going to say is that I, I think it still can be that, but also you can accept that for all the other species, it isn't a healing space. The, the countryside, or whatever you want to call it, is their battleground. Yes. They're fighting for survival every second of the day. It doesn't mean you can't go out into a field or a forest and listen and think it's beautiful. But I think, I think that beauty is enhanced if you accept that that's a human perception of what's there rather than what is actually there for other species. That's 
That's great. That's really you're you're very unique. I well from my world. Mm. What I hear you say and what I've heard you say over this weekend is you're very unique in that in that exploration. I think oh, it's difficult. It's quite I mean I'd say it's, it's it's getting better but it's quite an unfashionable thing to say in the field in the inverted commas field recording world to because field recording for a long time, one of the bizarre things about how histories get distorted is, you were saying some people have never heard of field recording. Everybody will listen to recordings, like studio recordings. Field recording came first. Studios are a later invention. All sound was field recording until studios were invented. You know, so that that history is there. And it, it's kind of strange that we think of field recording as a kind of separate thing, and it's become... I would say from the sort of 40s, 1940s onwards, it became owned by nature recordists and bird recordists. And, and then in the sort of 70s, it started to be experimental music, started using field recordings, it started to open out again. And in the last 10 or 15 years, it's opened out massively. It's, it's now, in terms of creative, shall we say creative field recording, so not conventional, um, conventional use of microphones, but more creative approaches. It's opened out massively. It permeates sound design, you know, uh, composition, sound art, as we've talked about. Uh, so games, it's not games design, yeah, yeah, massively so. Um, so I think, as I think I've mentioned this weekend, this term field recording is, has become slightly problematic because if you say field recording, people usually think you mean nature recording. And most of my work, for example, is in urban spaces. You know, I'm primarily known for the recordings of architecture. That was how I became, if I'm known for anywhere, that my first kind of works that I was known for were recordings of buildings resonating. You did the Tate, didn't you? I did the Tate, yeah, yeah, Tate Modern. So have you shifted your focus away from buildings or is that still very much a part of your work? I mean, where is your work now? I don't divide it. I mean, I, okay. I'm... Um, yeah, I don't, it's, it's quite, an, I, mean, I probably, um, I shoot myself in the foot quite often in terms of the fact that I don't, in the art world, usually an artist has, gets known for one thing and then keeps repeating it endlessly. And that, for me, it's about the listening. So my listening is always moving and shifting. So I still record a lot of architecture, a lot of urban spaces, but I just record what I feel like recording at the time or listen to what I feel like listening to at the time. It's not... I don't restrict myself in that sense. That's good. I think I, I'm, I, I'm in a place in my own work where I can't, I can't self-identify with this, this forager tag I am. That's mm. something I do as a mm. human being. Mm. I need the, the freedom to, to explore anything that I happen to want to put my brain into. Yeah, yeah. So I want to cover two things because they're, they're important for me and I think they're important for, will be important for the listeners. One is this concept of durational listening. Mm, mm. And then I really want you to go cover the, the forgotten, the erased, yeah. the erased story, yeah, the yeah. erased people. Because, yeah, so durational listening. Yeah, so the, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of not an academically proven thing, but there's generally five orders of listening. Anything below about three minutes, we 
in terms of psychology of listening, we perceive it as a sound effect. So it's a transitory thing in our, in our life, like a record, like a song, you know, a commercial song. They're getting shorter and shorter because our attention span is getting shorter and shorter, for one thing. Um, and then there's about 20 minutes, which is, I think is called the blue zone. Or it's got another name, but it's, it's why a lot of symphonies, uh, going right back you know, to the sort of 1700s and onwards, the movement of a symphony was usually never longer than 15 to 20 minutes because that was considered the attention span of the audience. Uh, and I'm really interested in sort of fourth and fifth order listening, which is after about two or three hours, when I'm not going to say you become all in an altered state, but certainly it's harder and harder for you to impose your ideas of what's there onto the place. The place has become, the place has become dominant, you know, so you kind of, um, you've surrendered control of the thought process to the, to what's coming into your head rather than what you're projecting out of it. Which does sound, does sound very new agey, but it's, it's, maybe I should write a self-help book about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, it's, about, it's about stepping back and, and, and letting the space impose itself on you rather than you deciding what's there, thinking about what you're gonna do with that recording, whatever, just, just letting go of that control. I re that was one of the key bits when I think we, we turned up on Friday afternoon, evening, and, and you, you mentioned that, and I just thought, oh, this is going to rock this weekend. <laughs> if you're coming from that kind of place, you're going to be an interesting character to have hung around with. And, and I think everyone on the gig is, is, you know, has that conclusion. I mean, it's, uh, the thing is, it's not easy. No, it's and really I hard. I mean, everybody can do it, but what I mean is it's not... If, if you get to the end, if you, if you sit in one space and listen, either with microphones or just with your ears, and you come out of it after three years feeling relaxed and calm. Come out of it after three years? Three, sorry, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you come out for three years, you, good luck. But no, sorry, three, three hours and you feel relaxed and calm, you haven't been listening. Yes. You know? if, you, if you're listening, it's a, it's, a, it's a physical experience, you know. Uh, it should affect you in a deeper way than just calming you down, you know. That's my, that's my take, you know, but other people, I'm not, I'm not saying that's the right take, I'm just saying that's my take. Yeah, I, I no, then that's what we're hearing. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I am really fascinated by, and I did ask you, you know, what, over the weekend, you know, what's the, what's the shift in yourself? Wh why? What's the, the driver there that, that make, is it that thing of just feelings, I, I, okay, so my thing is that I, I, I try and find it, uh, places that I can go to where I feel really small in the vastness of the right, rest right. of the world. Yeah, yeah. That, that human dominant kind of, you know, yeah. I own it all kind of um, attitude. It's just knocked down mm. and it gives me a different understanding of my place as a human and I don't mean in any cosmic way mm, mm. just within the rest of the world because we've done so much damage yeah, sure. by imposing ourselves on the world so it's a kind of a redress mm. on that front so I mean I can think about all that stuff and maybe afterwards I can think about that for me as a as a it's really hard for me to explain but I need to be as open as possible to do the listening that I do. So even if I research or think about those issues in, in general, in my life, when I'm 
when I'm in the right frame of mind to listen, I think I can get there. None of those thoughts are in my head. Mm. They push back because I think it would colour what I'm hearing. I think I would, if I was sat there thinking about the human imposition, um, then I'd start to I'd start to build that narrative into what I'm hearing. If you see what I mean. But it's it's not the reason why I said it's not easy is because it's a bit like bad hair day. You have bad ear days where you can't do that, where you're too full of thoughts. You know, like this forest piece, for example. Like, um, I don't think it's going to upset anybody if I say that. I, I mean, the human noise I knew was going to be there in the forest of Dean, but the cycle path through the forest I found really problematic, really seriously problematic. And they're probably the thing that people think is quite eco-friendly is cycles rather than cars going through the forest, but they were really problematic. And I had to stop listening and stop recording because I realised I was, all of those thoughts were sort of clouding my openness to the listening, you know. So you have to, you have to be in the right frame of mind to do it. So did you enter a place of accepting the cycle pass? No. <laughs> No, I had to um, record at different times before the cyclist had either got up or after he'd gone to bed. And I had to go uh, drive, actually. I was given the keys to the, to the runs, you know, the sort of gated runs, because I had to drive well into the forest, away from where the general public normally wander, to get away from it, because it, it was just frying. I couldn't do any proper listening. No, I, I ha- it, it, yeah, that's a really interesting one, though, those... Um Psychopaths, I just find, I, 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 I just don't walk where I know those are going to be. And there, I mean, in this country, they're in almost every forest now, in every managed forest, they'll have a cycle trail. And I can see why, you know, I can understand why they've done that. Um, but it's, um, especially, wh- especially where it's managed, where the, it intersects with the walking paths, it's really, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Shall we talk about the history? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, Get off the. Con- well, let, let, I was going to say, let's get off the contrarian, and actually, let's now go Talk into even more, even more <laughs> contrarian. Field recording. Yes. Erased histories. Erased people. Yes. Tell us, tell us your your take on that, because it's you've you've inferred it, dripped it to us over the weekend. It's been fascinating, uh, shocking, and yeah, it's um. I'm not going to claim that when I was in my teens, I was already <laughs> a well-informed feminist. <laughs> you know, I probably wasn't aware of what feminism was. I mean, I was raised by my mum, so I was certainly aware of uh, lots of the issues. Uh, but I wasn't a well-read. You know, I wasn't reading radical books. You know, um, but it was ju- it was spare rib wasn't in your bedroom. I did. Have, I did used to actually have spare rib. Actually, that's oh, one right, I did okay. have. But yeah. um, I wasn't well-read in that sense. The thing so. And my, my point is, that lots of my stuff was entirely accidental. As I, like, when I was into sort of punk and new wave, I was so young, I only had pocket money. And the record shop in the town near where I lived, it was run by a really sexist bloke who any, any band that came in that was female, led off all female, would go straight in the sale bin. So I would go in there with me 50p, and instead of buying one record by one of the big bands, I would buy four or five in the sale bin. So it was entirely accidental that I just happened, most of my listening was always female-fronted. Um, and when I first started getting to know what sound art was or what field recording was, 
and I met other people into it and they were spouting all these male names, it just didn't make sense to me. It wasn't that I was thinking, hey, you've missed this person out. It was just like, do you know, you've been talking for an hour and you haven't mentioned a single woman. What's wrong there? That's not the real world, you know. And it's like anything. I mean, most, I'm talking about now about a time before the internet, but this, the material is there if you look for it. The problem is, is people don't look at it, look for it. They just assume that the, the people who have been written into the histories, the old distorted histories, they just like, take those because that's unfortunately how the academic si situation often works. Is that there are certain names that if you quote those, you get a tick, you know. And too often, I mean, this is changing radically now. Thank God. Too often, you could get away with writing a paper just quoting the same old names over and over again without doing any original research and the material is there if you look for it but it's you have to be prepared you have to be willing and able to look for it that's the thing um, so in terms of sound art history for example same thing is uh, you know predominantly women female led in its history but if you read histories of it you'll see it's that's not reflected there are major artists who are at the forefront of sound art that are now thankfully starting to be acknowledged but were missing from the histories for a long time still are you know still not where they should be in the histories still misunderstood still marginalized or sidelined you know and do you see that as a as a kind of a an aspect of of patriarchy and male dominance just you know the the, the man will get acknowledged and the woman can just you know, shut up. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, that, yes, but that's the easy answer. Okay. So if, if, for example, we're talking about sound art, if we go back to the 60s and 70s, um, people like Pauline Oliveros and Anaya Lockwood and all these people were mixing with the male artists who've become much better known until recently than, than they were for a long time. And it's too easy, therefore, to search as patriarchy because those male composers at the time should have known better because they were quite radical individuals as well. So they've allowed it to happen. So when what's that about then? If it's not patriarchy, what is that? Well, it is patriarchy, but what I'm saying is it's not, um, it's not the kind of... It's patriarchy that seeps into even people who think of themselves as not part of that. You know? And you, it's very difficult to discuss, and it's probably too long a subject for this podcast you know it's like the dominance of John Cage for example yes yeah. always mentioned when you talk about anything to do with quiet or silence and that's a distortion tell us that that because you that was fascinating about Cage because everyone you know even people who don't particularly know about sound art may well have heard of John Cage yeah so tell us about the the erasure that he did well, there's a th uh, if, you, if you go to art school, most art schools, or in fact most schools, especially in the States, have this ten rules of being creative pinned to the wall. It's a famous post, it was around in the 70s and everything, it's ten rules that says, oh, I mean, this is, again, this is being corrected now, which is good, but for a long time it said by John Cage at the bottom. And it wasn't, it was by Sister Carita Kent. Who was Sister who is this? Sister Greta Kent. Yeah, who was uh, she? She was a nun, but she was very famous in the 60s and 70s as a kind of radical screen printer. Um, very active in the sort of um, equal rights movement and the uh, racial equality movements and stuff. She was uh, an educator. She yeah. taught screen printing. Um, and, and not kind of... Um, it was quite... I mean, a, 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 a screen printer iconic. 
they look like they've been done yesterday. They're quite yeah. radical, you know, quite um, contemporary looking even now. Uh, and a fascinating character, you know. So you mentioned about the, the origins of actually recording. Mm. And I mean, you talked about the stone stone bowls that have a ring around that. You know, the cup and ring marks. Yeah, yeah. cup and ring marks. Yeah. But then you talked about the original kind of the first recording on paper. Now, mm. the, these were all women that did this. Well, that's what we, we, we had this discussion during this weekend and somebody looked it up, somebody Googled it and, and it, in I think it was on Wiki, whether it was on Wikipedia, it says that that recording was made by a man. And the one that we all thought we knew about, which was the supposedly the first ever recording that still exists, was, we've all thought, was a female French singer singing a French folk song. Turns out, according to Wikipedia, it's, it's a male voice and it was being played back at the wrong speed. Now, I, I Googled that last night in my room and had a listen to it, and it sounds odd. I, 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 don't, I think the speed is still wrong. I think it is a woman's voice, and they've... I'm not saying they've deliberately slowed it down to make it sound like a man, but it doesn't sound like a man to me. It definitely sounds like the timber of a... Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to make anything out. It's so deteriorated. But I'm going to stick to my guns and say it's probably a woman. Um, whether it was a woman who recorded it, I don't know. But. So if people wanted to... To start, so let, let's talk about nature sounds and nature recordings um, as being just fakes mm. for all, let's, for all intents and purposes. That, you know, when someone says, okay, I want to record the sound of an oak tree, the wind yeah. in the oak mm. leaves, explain that why, why nature recordings are a con, really. Yeah, I mean, it's not that they're recording, it's just that, like, for example, if somebody goes out and says, I want to record that tree with some normal microphones and sits under the tree and records that tree, that isn't that tree. That's that one person's translation of that space, m mediated through the technologies they've chosen, the type of microphone, the type of recorder, anything they've done to the recording afterwards. It is not the real place. So that's what I mean about, it's not that it's a con, it's just that it's, when you listen to it, you, you have to accept that it's not that place. It's like you can go onto YouTube and listen to the Brazilian rainforest. You are not listening to the Brazilian rainforest. What's you listening to? You are listening to one person's recording through a certain set of microphones and recorder of that space. But it's still, I mean, our microphones, whichever type of microphone you use, are only picking up a fraction of the frequencies that are there anyway. For other species, they won't hear it like that. They don't hear like we do. No. You know, they hear into the ultrasonic range, some into the infrasonic range. We, I mean, of all the species on the planet who have, um, you know, hearing as we would think of it, sonic, you know, uh, hearing, we're the dumbest by far. You know, our hearing is so insensitive. So is that what your durational listening is about? Is about trying to somehow, however momentarily, and even whether or not it's possible to, to just get to that place where you're not imposing your filters onto it. Yeah, I mean, the more you listen, the more you will hear. You know, you'll, you'll go through stages. You'll go through a stage where maybe you, you've kind of, your ears have become exhausted and it's, you have to push through that, you know. But yeah, the, the, the more you listen, the more you hear because the filters that we have to put on our ears, the psychological filters, in order to cope with city living, for example. And not, nowadays, not even city living. You can be living in quite a rural environment. Mm. There's still train, uh, planes going overhead and cars, road noise. 
So we have these filters that dumb down our hearing. And the, more, the longer you listen, the more those kind of lift. You know, you know you've, you've said that you love Japan. I do, yeah. And you, yeah. you're going to be going there at the end of this mm. exhibition. Mm. And when I hear you talk, it sounds like I'm listening to someone who's almost a Zen practitioner. Oh, God. A very, a very um, down-to-earth Zen practitioner, not an ascetic. But in that sense of trying to return to the presence of actually what is you are actually listening to rather than imposing. That's mm. quite a Zen practice of experiencing what actually is. I guess so. I mean, um, I think there's a lot of weight with Zen. I mean, it's like any organised religion or belief system. It comes with weight. What I do will come with my own personal weight. You know. Sure. Uh, we can't escape that, but um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's one of the hardest things for me talking about what I do because I often, on like workshops, for example, we're talking about technologies. We, you know, I'm showing you different microphones, how to use them. But I do this because I like doing it and need to do it. So even if there was no career or any time chance of earning any money from it, I'd still do it. I still, you know, did it long before I ever earned any money from doing it. So it's just something I need to do. It's quite personal for me. So I can think about all the other aspects of it, the eco-acoustics, the environmental concerns, the urban planning. I'm fascinated by that, how, how bad we are in this country at urban planning. We, if you go to any, I mean, for example, Japan, the first time I went to Tokyo, which I think most people who have not been to Japan will think of Tokyo as this really intense, massive city. If you, if you walk 50 yards away from any of the main streets, everything falls into place. There is a stillness and a quietude there. Because it's been planned properly, with respect for the need for stillness and quietude, you know, which is a Zen thing. You know, it does come from that, and, and Shinto, you know, it's, it comes from that kind of needing some calm in your life. And that's a perception as well. But, um, and in this country, we are so bad at town planning. Any kind of planning, we're a part, the sound is not considered at all. You, know? you just said, even before you started making money at it, it's all were known. Or you need to do this. Oh, I think I've always been a listener. Like if I go back to even before that tape recorder I got, I would the first sound, the first abstract sound that I can remember hearing and being intrigued by was the my bedroom used to be above at the back of the house, overlooking the garden. And we had a, a clothesline, like a, you know, clothesline that was on, attached to the wall on a screw. And when the wind was blowing at a certain rate, you could hear it through the wall. So if I snuggled up to the wall and I was in bed, I'd hear this odd whining sound. I thought, what the hell's that? It took me ages to work out and it was that. And I used to lie laying there and listening to that. So I think I always, and I mean, there's an even more personal aspect to that. I gravitated towards listening required stillness and, and sounds that were almost imperceptible, you know, because I, I needed that kind of space in my head. Interesting. So I've always been a listener, I think. I think yeah. whatever I'd have done, I mean, in fact, everything I've ever done has been connected to sound in some way, really, you know. It's an interesting sense. I, I, I started bringing into my own practice. Um, I'm known as a sensory botanist, so a traditional botanist, for those who are listening, will use a 
flower key, plant key, to identify plants. It was very visual. Right. And I, I teach using senses. So, you know, the, the feel of the, the leaf okay. is an indicator. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sound of the plant I've been bringing in is an indicator. And then the smell. Mm -hmm. And then if it's safe to put it in your mouth, then the taste as well. So you mm -hmm. get this whole full full experience of the plant that you're trying to learn rather than just eyes mm. which is one mm. sense so you're missing most of the story yeah or the the um the experience of that plant and someone in spring i taught them to do the the hearing you know get the leaf just gently roll it and really pay attention you know just mm. try and drop out of your head telling you stuff and what is actually what is that sound? Mm. And hour later, we're off exploring another plant, and the, the, this guy picks it up and he goes, "That sounds like it's like the plant that you showed us at the beginning, Robin." Mm. And it was in that moment that I realised that sound, even though I'm only touching into it in the way of relating with plants was fundamental because actually what he what I was showing him that hour later mm, mm. was another species of a plant in the same family. Right, right. And it's this this is why I like the durational listening. It's like it's almost like by doing practices like that, it it just well for me, it opens up my experience and appreciation of the world mm. around me mm -hmm. that I am a part of. And I remember when I put on those headphones, because we listen with headphones mm -hmm. on your workshops, mm -hmm. and because of the particular mics, it was like bionic ears. Yeah, and it was, yeah. oh my God, this world is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for to wind up the interview, if people listening want to start that, do they just literally turn on their phone and do a voice memo? Or is there a bit more you would suggest? No, they can do. I mean, I always say start with the kit that you've got, with, the, with whatever you've got. You know, if you haven't got, even got a phone, use your ears and listen differently. You know, um, stretch your listening a bit. And So when you say that, how... People might be going, but I don't understand what you mean. So, Ooh. so who could they explore? I mean, there's your own site that has scores. Yeah, there's various things you can do. You can use a score, an instructional score, like a text score, or you use a photograph, or just visually look at something. But I think the main thing is to think differently about sound. So, so instead of, like, for example, instead of walking out into the countryside and thinking this is beautiful, think of the fact that for every other species it's terrifying. Just listen differently. That sounds like an unpleasant experience. It's not. It just means that you, you're accepting that there are other ways to think about the listening. And once you've done that with one form of listening like that, you do it with many others. Um, and if you do want to use a technology, then there are all kinds of, you know, you can use a phone, you can buy a cheap digital recorder, you can, you can spend as much as you want. You can spend too much on, on equipment sometimes. Um, but I really think Cutting out all of that, because all of that means nothing if the listening hasn't moved forward. And that's what you've been um, stressing 
throughout this interview is that it is not so much the recording, mm, it is the listening, listening and that actually the microphones that we've used this weekend, I didn't need to actually record any of it because it is that experience of listening, mm. which I, I have to say to people, if, you, if you're new to this field, give it a go because mm. I think if you like, you know, if you like kind of the outdoors or even if you don't and you like kind of the very human world, like Jez started with architecture, I mean, you can take anything in this world and deepen your relationship. I, I think for me, that's what I've come away with mm. is that these are practices that deepen my relationship with the world mm. that it's non-verbal. I can't say what the benefit is. All I know is it's extremely healthy and wholesome. Yeah, and you, do, you don't even need to, need to go to the countryside to do it. Like, if you live in the city, for example, just open your window. And one kind of, it's not a trick, but one thing you can do is, instead of thinking of, like, you might live in, live in the centre of a big city, for example, and you might keep your window closed to keep that noise out, flip your thinking and listen to it as if it's a symphony. And you'll find that the you know, the road noise will, will rise and fall, you know, there'll be different tones coming in here and there, there might be birds, there might be people talking. Think of it as, you, as if you're listening to a piece of music and you'll find this kind of rich symphony of sound anywhere, even if you're stuck in a traffic jam somewhere or on a, on a tube or on a train. If you listen differently, it kind of, it's a, it can become a pleasurable experience which encourages you then to tackle the aspects of it to do with objectification and, and perception and things like that. Yeah. If people want to find you, mm. you don't do social media, I don't think. Well, I do. I mean, oh, you do? Really well, bloody have to. Oh, okay. I'm on Instagram and I, I, mean, I am on Facebook, but I don't use Facebook that often. Actually, yeah. No. But I'm on Instagram, but I have a website, of course. And it's Jez, J E Z. Jez Riley, Riley French. Jez Riley, R I L E Y, French, as in French. <laughs> .co.uk. Okay. And that will be in the show notes along with various rabbit holes, <laughs> hopefully, that we can take you down. So, Jez, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. This is where you finally didn't press record. <laughs> <laughs>